a little bit of a question I'd like to ask you. Trust God? Really? Like, what evidence do we have that he actually loves us and cares about us? Oops. There's not a whole lot on the stage with me right now except a cross right behind me. If you need more evidence, <laughs> I'm not sure what you need. Uh, that's In our world, where things are so difficult to understand, and yes, creation and, and, and the multitude of interplay of things in terms of circumstances, some call it fate, some call it different things, there's a lot that we don't understand. But when you start asking the question, why, and you challenge God, like Job did, there's one thing that we do understand, and that is we understand who God is, and we understand his love. He has made that painfully obvious to us. So, yes, there's stuff that we don't understand, but that's not God. God, I mean, he's beyond our ability to understand everything, but we understand his love. Technically, our story, uh, or this event that we're looking at today, is not really an infancy story, since Jesus is 12 years old. He's, he's a year away from his being accountable as a Jewish boy. And, and, I mean, in Latin America, we have the quinceanera, at the 15th birthday, a, wo- a girl becomes a woman. Uh, for a Jewish male, when he's 13, he is technically a man, and there's all kinds of requirements placed on him. But in literary terms, uh, since the, uh, the close of the passage in verse 52 parallels verse 40, and although we didn't read it, in verse 40 it says, The child grew and became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then verse 52, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Uh, we've got these bookends again. And Luke is organizing this story in the middle of these two bookends. And I don't know about you, but... Man, what does that mean that the divine Son of God grew in wisdom and grace and favor? Didn't he have it all? What do we mean he grew? And uh, I hope to address some of that this morning and uh, certainly uh, help us to think about it. In, In... In terms of the infancy narrative, we've had the declaration of the shepherds and the magi and the angels, and now Luke adds to his account Jesus' initial testimony to himself as well. And maybe that's a fitting close to this section, where Jesus actually talks about himself again, and he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Uh, So there's this declaration that Jesus makes In Luke's gospel, it's the first time he speaks, and he says something fairly significant about himself. Well, let's go through the passage and and look at some of of the things that I think Luke wants us to notice. Uh, First of all, you'll notice uh, that Mary and Joseph and Jesus practiced a life of devotion. In verse 41 and 42, uh, Luke is stressing when he talks about them going... Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, uh, that they were devout and law-abiding. 
Uh, we see, we already saw in verse uh, 22, 23, and 24, and, and 39, how Mary and Joseph did everything required by the Mosaic law. They were devout. Uh, I think that by stressing this, Luke is trying to help us accept the fact that all Je- although Jesus was killed by Jewish leaders and teachers, it's not really because he was outside of Jewish faith. Jesus' parents and Jesus himself were devoted to the law of Moses. Now, the annual trip to the Passover was one of the highlights of the Jewish calendar. It was one of three annual festivals that were celebrated in the capital. The other two were Tabernacles and Pentecost. And of course, Passover celebrated the Exodus as the beginning of Israel's freedom. It celebrated the time when they were able to leave Egypt as God brought them out from underneath the thumb of Pharaoh. Most families that lived some distance from Jerusalem, like Jesus' parents in Nazareth, generally went to only one of the festivals. And I'm guessing that the Passover was probably the most important one, so that's probably the one that most of them would have gone to. Men were required to attend, but women were not. And so Mary's going shows the depth of the family's piety as well. And then also the text seems to suggest that they stayed for the entire week when they were actually only required to stay for two days. So I'm thinking that Luke wants us to recognize that this family was devout. Now the trip from Nazareth normally took three days, and the people would generally travel in caravans for protection. That's a whole lot better than if you're all by yourself. Well, as our story unfolds in verse 43 to 45, we have what I call a misunderstanding. I can still remember and They say that when memories are tied to emotions, they're stronger, so you don't forget them. I can remember where I was when I walked into the mall, St. Fatal Mall, into a store, and little Michael beside me hid underneath a coat rack. And I turned, and he was gone. You want to talk about panic on steroids. Like panic. I feel like going and slapping him right now. It's understandable as a parent, and some of you have had a similar experience. The panic that you feel. And on this particular occasion, when they returned to Jerusalem, Jesus, uh, sorry, they returned to Nazareth from Jerusalem, Jesus remains behind in Jerusalem. And it's only after a day of traveling that the parents discover that he's not with the group. Now, they're in a caravan, probably family and relatives and everything else, and they think he's in the group. After all, he should be. He's been fairly reliable to this point. And they assumed that he was somewhere in the caravan, even though the text does not explain how he could go missing for an entire day. And by the time they have found him, he has been missing for three days. And it depends how you read the text. Uh, The NIV pushes one particular interpretation. But you could say one day out, with a caravan, another day to go back, and another day to look for him. And, and we see, I think we can sense, Mary and Joseph's feelings. Frustration, confusion, amazement. It's not that they don't understand Jesus' special relationship to his heavenly Father. They know that Jesus is special. But they don't have the whole story 
They don't understand the whole plan as it unfolds in the gospel. And this, this is a point I want you to catch. Mary said yes to the angel. She said yes to what God wanted. That didn't mean that God said, okay, let me show you exactly what's all going to happen here. In fact, the disciples didn't know what was all going to happen here either. And today, although you might want to, you might think that I'm being a little heretical, I'm, I'm going to suggest that there's a possibility that even Jesus didn't know everything that was going to happen. That as he set aside some of his attributes, he also didn't know all of the details, but he took step by step in faithful obedience to the Father. They show faith. Mary and Joseph show faith in God's plan for them. But that doesn't mean that they understand the entire plan. And so these anxious parents return to Jerusalem in search of Jesus. Verse 46, after three days, Mary and Joseph find Jesus alive and well after three days in a place they hadn't expected. I'm not going to push this point, but I'm going to suggest it. This sounds a little bit like Easter. And maybe Luke is already hinting here at the resurrection. Remember, there's three days between Jesus' death and resurrection, where he's missing, if you will. Jesus dies, is buried, and is raised on the third day. And there is a new temple, Jesus' resurrected body. That's the new temple. And yes, for us, our searching will come to an end in a new life that God intends for us. So they find him in the temple. And what is he doing? Verse 46 and 47. He is listening, he's asking questions, and he is answering. Now, I know sometimes, I've had students my own family maybe sometimes get annoyed because when I ask a question, they can sometimes tell that I already know the answer. I'm just trying to coax it out of them. And then they roll their eyes and say, so what is it already? Uh, was that the kind of questions Jesus was asking here? Was he asking questions because he knew, but he was trying to see if they knew? Uh, I, I don't know if that's what the text is suggesting. The parents discover Jesus among the teachers in the temple. He is listening, something that's often hard to do. He's asking questions and he's responding, he's replying. Now, it wasn't really unusual in that day for students to gather at the feet of the rabbi to discuss theology. And the format was often question and answer, discussion. So this is, that part is not unusual. But Luke notices here that even at his young age, Jesus has amazing knowledge of the things of God. He has amazing knowledge of the things of God. In fact, those who are listening to him are astonished at his understanding. And, and yes, that astonishment at his understanding, that reaction happens many times later in Luke's gospel as people come in contact with Jesus and listen to his teaching. It appears that already early in life, Jesus values the pursuit of comprehending God, and he increases in wisdom and stature. His approach to knowing God and seeking understanding pictures how we should pursue the same even at a young age. 
I don't know what your year, New Year's resolutions look like, uh, but pursuing understanding of God and pursuing a closer relationship with God, I hope that figures high on your list. Does Jesus' growing in wisdom reflect his humanity? Does it suggest that he set aside certain attributes, as other scriptures indicate? In his humanity, did he not know the full details of the plan and therefore live in dependence on God the Father and is working out his plan in his time? I'd like you to think about that. Verse 48, we have anxiety and astonishment. I think any parent that reads this account understands what happens next. Jesus' parents are overwhelmed by what has taken place and how they have lost their son and then recovered him. And it's a frustrated mother that asks her budding adolescent how he could have behaved in this way, leaving his parents with a major anxiety attack. I think any one of us would have asked a question like that. And we can identify with Mary and Joseph and their response to Jesus in this incident. Yet the issue that he raises in his reply is that the unique call that he possesses and his unique relationship to God makes his parents' indirect rebuke of him irre irrelevant. <clears throat> Mary's question to Jesus seems accusatory. What were you doing? What were you thinking? See, Mary sees Jesus as being in the wrong. <clears throat> and can someone be in the wrong without sinning? I think so. Jesus thought that they should have known that he would stay behind in the temple. They knew who he was after all. He thought it would be obvious. The searching and the worry would be unnecessary. <clears throat> See, there's a misunderstanding here in the text, a misunderstanding of place, the temple, a misunderstanding of position, his sonship, and a misunderstanding of time, God's plan. And so Jesus' response in verse 49 and 50, I had to be in my father's house. <clears throat> I wonder if Luke's way of saying things here that they didn't understand Jesus, in verse 50, is his way of saying to us, there's more here than meets the eye. This is the point, don't miss it. Jesus' reply to Mary is just as direct as hers. I must be about the things of my Father. Jesus' point is that his career must be about instruction regarding the kingdom of God. And the temple was not only a place of worship, it was also a place of instruction. Though he is only 12 at this point, the day is coming when this will be his priority. <clears throat> the word must was often on the Lord's lips. In chapter 4, he says, I must preach. In chapter 9, he says, the Son of Man must suffer. And John says in chapter 3, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Even at the age of 12, Jesus is moved by divine compulsion to do the Father's will. 
By saying, I had to be, Jesus begins to undertake a path of obeying God and leaving the home that he knew as his home. I think Luke loves to mark key sayings with, it is necessary to show the fulfillment of God's plan. This is a high point in the infancy narrative as Jesus explains his call in his own words. In the meantime, he's obedient to his parents. And all Mary can do is ponder these events in her heart. Something that Luke's readers are invited to do as well. See, this is a pronouncement account, a decisive pronouncement near the end of the story where Jesus reflects his own self-understanding of who he is. And I think we too must be in the house of God to get the strength and the resources for mission. But we need not stay there to perform it. Regardless of Jesus' tone, the tension between Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, and Jesus, son of God, is heightened in this passage. And yet Jesus returns to Nazareth and is obedient to his parents. It is, however, clear that his priorities have changed. <clears throat> the main point of the passage probably lies in the contrast between your father and my father. See, Mary says, how could you do this to your father and I? And Jesus says, I have to be in my father's house. It's a subtle your father, my father shift. Your father and I have been searching for you, and Jesus says, I have to be in my father's house. This is a crucial point in his self-declaration. And as Simeon had told Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Jesus is going to follow his calling. Verse 51 to 52. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor. And I think that that's the result of obedience. I'm not sure if that's experiential growth. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. He learned things. And I guess we could ask, was Jesus wrong, not sinful, but wrong, in disappearing and staying in Jerusalem? Does our Christology allow us to contemplate that possibility? Was Mary wrong in her expectations? There are things that we can learn from this text. What was true of Jesus during his New Testament ministry in terms of pursuing God's call is true of him today. He is still about the things of his Father, and today he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, interceding for us and watching over us. He's still, he's still doing the Father's will. And his special access to God means that Jesus is not merely a prophet or a great teacher, but the one who proclaims and brings God's kingdom to us. As the Son of God, he is more than an ethicist or a venerated religious figure. He is unique. And his unusual way is probably just a sign of his authority. Jesus' ministry has its proper time. 
and he will wait to launch it at the right time. Of course, he has to wait for the forerunner, John the Baptist, to begin his own task. And so in the next chapter, Luke records the ministry of John the Baptist some 17 years later. Jesus doesn't run ahead, but he doesn't drag behind either. He waits for God's timing, and he is obedient to God's timing for him. I think that Jesus' attitude about his walk with God and his call to serve him and his pursuit of intimacy with God is not necessarily only a product of his unique sonship with God. It actually pictures how all of us should prioritize our lives with God. All of us should prioritize our lives with God that way. Our attitude about our walk with God, our call to serve him, our pursuit of intimacy with him should be modeled after Christ. Yes, sometimes we have to make choices that others don't understand because God has called us to set priorities that others might not be in agreement with. Jesus, as a unique person, however, reflects how we should seek God's face. Time spent before him in the temple or at his feet in the word or using our hands in ministry they might be understood differently by people who have different priorities. As with many texts in the gospel, the basic question here is, how do you respond to Jesus' authority? Will you accept or reject his claims? I believe that our relationship with God is determined by our response to Jesus. Our relationship with God is determined by our response to Jesus. The world tells us to treat Jesus as one great religious figure among many. If Jesus says he is the way, as he does in John chapter 14, then either he is or he is not. There aren't other options. I like the way C.S. Lewis said it. He says there's only three options. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. You pick. I think the discussion actually boils down to two. Either he is or he isn't. Jesus does not leave the world the option of merely ranking him among great religious figures in history. He's either much more or much less. And I think Luke's gospel is telling us that he is much, much more. But our story also takes on an interesting depth when we think of the Father's plan of salvation unfolding. And it unfolded before Jesus day by day. Rather than having him have some kind of a bird's eye view of the whole thing from the start. And I'm going to give you one verse which I think supports my thinking that Jesus limited his ability to know the entire plan. Remember when he prayed in the garden, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Why would he even bother praying that if it was completely out of the question? So I'm suggesting that Jesus walked faithfully after God and obeyed God even though he did not necessarily have a flashlight that showed the entire path. He chose to limit himself. He had a keen sense of his mission, as we see from the story, but he left the unfolding of that mission in God's hands. 
He did not know the hour. Even the hour was coming. He laid aside that kind of knowledge in the incarnation and only knew what his father was sharing with him. That means that Jesus had to have faith in his father about the future, just like we do. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that most of us seated here this morning and most of you joining us via live stream don't really know what 2022 is going to bring. Probably we're about as unsure about a year as we have been in a long time. Uh, Besides the challenges of the pandemic, some are facing significant health challenges. Some are facing other challenges, huge difficulties. And, and, And so you're going into this year with that kind of a landscape. I want to turn your attention back to the cross. Because there is one thing that you can do to walk into 2022 with confidence, and that is to trust in God. Because he has a plan, he knows what it is, he continues to be omniscient and sovereign and faithful, despite the circumstances that you and I face or what might be going on, it is still a loving Heavenly Father that's got your back. So, so to me, as I look at this passage, I see Jesus faithfully following God in obedience. And because he does so, he grows in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Does his not knowing the hour make him less God? I don't think so. I think you and I need to learn dependence on God. We need to learn patience and we need to grow in wisdom. As parents, we make mistakes. I think most of us. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say all of us. But God parents us perfectly so that we can grow in wisdom and favor. And we have a big brother Jesus, who has gone before us. And as Hebrew says, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So, so I want you, I want to encourage you to go into this new year with all of the unknowns. And maybe it feels a little bit for you like it felt for me when I had an MRI in Guadalajara. I'm claustrophobic. That should answer exactly what I went through. I went through my prayer list four times. I almost pressed the button five times. Um, I didn't open my eyes because I knew I'd freak if I did. Maybe that's what you think this coming year is going to be. Then focus your eyes on Christ and the cross and God's faithfulness and Know that God has a plan. We don't know all the details. We don't know the amazing chess game that he's involved in. And I won't unpack free will and all of these other things. There's a lot about creation and everything else that we don't understand, but we do understand God and his love. We have it demonstrated in the cross. Let's pray and then I'll ask Andrew to come up.
Heavenly Father, we have to admit that humanly speaking, it's sometimes difficult to trust. We sometimes link understanding with trust. So I don't trust what I don't understand. And yet you call us, just as you called your son to trust, to walk in obedience. And he modeled that perfectly for us. So as we, uh, we're on the cusp of a new year, as we start off in 2022, maybe this year we need to learn to trust. Trust more. Maybe we need to learn to listen for your voice to hear you, and then to obey. Lord, we uh, don't know what's in store for us in 2022, but we can go forward in confidence and hope because you are with us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. couple messages here. Uh, first one, regarding Jesus possibly not knowing the whole plan, but having set aside some of his God-like attributes. Mark 13, 32 says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Would you say that this is a reference to Jesus not being all-knowing in his human form? I think I previously thought of it like the Father having secrets from the Son. Yeah, I've, I've often referred to that verse when people start talking about, you know, having it all mapped out about when he's coming back, because I think that when we say that we know, then we're actually making him a liar, because he says that even he doesn't know, the Father knows. Uh, that could be a reference to the limitations of his humanity. Uh, I don't know that I can say dogmatically that it is, but I'd be happy to accept that interpretation, yeah. In a world that pushes so strongly about career, in what ways can EFC do more to celebrate one another's kingdom call in Christ and not focus so much on what we do for a living? Sermon is a great example. Man, I, you know, we, we have historically um, ordained or commissioned missionaries and pastors and all of that. And, and if you recall my series on workplace faith, I suggested maybe we need to commission people for their, their nine-to-five job during the week because that's their, that's, your job is your fob. That's where you should be. And, and, and maybe we need to do a whole lot more in the area of discernment as a congregation, discernment as far as where people should plug in and what their gift set is and calling and all of that, their shape, if you will. It must have been difficult for Joseph to hear Jesus say, I must be in my father's house. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't even quite imagine. Um, you know, Simeon said that a sword will pierce your soul to marry. Um, I, I think that, that there, was, there was great privilege in being parents to Jesus, but there was also great burden. And, and we, I mean, we can't read between the lines that much, but I, I wonder, I, I know what I, I, my reaction would have been. Yeah. And that's a, 
a continuation of the initial call he has of the Lord saying, no, yeah. you'll, you know, don't divorce her quietly. This is, this is the call I have for you. And so, you know, he expects it, but still, like, I imagine that's a bit of a gut punch too, right? Like, well, and, and, and I, I look at it, and I'm going, why, why like this? Like, why do you do this when you're 12? And then you go home and you wait another 17 years for John the Baptist to do his thing. And then you, like, so, so I mean, my human understanding of the whole thing is limited. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't have the answers. Uh, but, but Luke is trying to make a point. Jesus sensed his calling, but then at the same time, he was obedient to his parents. And there was this sense of timing. Now, hmm. Both and. Both and, yeah. Jumping back a bit. Some thoughts out of the Superbook video. The complaining of the Israelites got me thinking, how different are we, am I? I know I've often complained about the COVID restrictions that we find ourselves in. Should we be expending our energy by complaining? Or should we be finding things to be thankful for? Like the fact that while I await a COVID test appointment, that I can still watch church from home. Just my two cents. You know, as I was watching the Superbook video, I had the same thought because I thought it sure, I don't, I don't know if it was intentional or just coincidence, but it, it, in my mind, it linked with what we were going to talk about this morning because trust or the absence of trust is huge. Yeah. Uh, and, and there we had it displayed. And, and it's so easy to point our fingers at the Israelites and say, you guys, what's your problem? Like you got all these, well, wait a sec. What about us, right? How are we that different? Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Jesus trusted God and got crucified. Can we expect anything else? Jesus promised that the world would treat his followers with the same kind of treatment of hatred. That, that probably requires a longer conversation, which we can't have now, but I'm willing to have. God didn't crucify Jesus. Hmm. Um, the powers of evil crucified Jesus. Um, for, for me to unpack that here was going to be a little difficult uh, because of time. Uh, but but when, when evil things happen, when, when you, you, you lose a child to an accident or a spouse to cancer or et cetera, et cetera, then our, our tendency is to say, God, why did you let this happen? Or we blame God. Mm. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm saying that actually... God doesn't do evil. But God also created this world with free will, and, and he has chosen to respect the free will that he has given the world, so he can't just intervene all of the time. Right? So anyway, that's, that's a longer, longer conversation. But I do want to say, from my perspective, God didn't kill Jesus. Sure. But also, like, the idea that... Um that blessing or success that comes from trusting God doesn't necessarily look like uh, maybe on the surface riches yeah. and fame, right? Yeah. Like it's it's a, a truer uh, reality underneath that, right? Like yeah. of who we were meant to be is in God's care and then serving Him, right? And maybe a reading of Job, especially those last chapters uh, where God starts asking Job questions and Job realizes that he, he just does not have the full picture, and, mm -hmm. and God does, right? Yeah. 